we uh, last week we talked about the nature of take a deep breath. I'll say this. Yes. Jason Wiltshire walked in today. <clears throat> Jason's by, by, by the way. This is Jason. There he is right there. See him. All right. He's the guy that's going to be handing basket, little uh, bags out later uh, with his beautiful wife, Eileen. He said to me, Steve, I have the Georgia game DVR from last night. I'm only halfway through. Do not talk about it today. So everyone go up and tell him your favorite play of the game after church today, and let's just ruin that for him. <laughs> All right, hey, so let's dive in this morning. Last week we talked about the nature of lordship, right? This nature of lordship, and it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Jesus is Lord. It's a, it's a theological foundation of all of Christianity, that Jesus Christ, let's say a theological foundation, it is foundational for our understanding of who God is and our relationship with him. That's all that I mean. Don't let theological scare you. All that means is the study of God, the nature of who God is, right? And so God, 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 Jesus is Lord. God is Lord over all of us. We said last week that we are under his authority. We are under his responsibility and we are under his compassion. Lordship is defined by these three. Jesus' authority, his responsibility, and his compassion. That it's not just this, this authoritarian type mean guy over here, but it's Jesus, who is Lord with authority, who has responsibility over us like a like a parent does, who is unbelievably loving and compassionate and mercy filled in the context of his authoritarian his authority over us, that Jesus is Lord. And so if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then it means you have committed yourself to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And so in the context then of Jesus is Lord, then we don't have the, the luxury of saying, well, I don't feel like doing that. Right. Or I don't have the luxury of saying, well, I just don't want to do that. Jesus. Right. That every day I live my life. In the context of saying Jesus is Lord and my life now is lived for the for obey following and obeying Jesus. But I would say this, that that in the context of the lordship of Jesus, that there is no safer place to be and no more life giving place than living under the lordship and the responsibility and the compassion of Jesus. And you have to pray through that and let that come alive inside of you. The understanding that every moment of every day is in in every step that I take, in every action that I make, in every conversation that I have, I'm living under the lordship of Jesus saying, God, in this moment, not my will, not my feelings, not my thoughts, but only yours. We live in the context of following Jesus. But the fact is this, and I don't know about y'all, maybe y'all are more holy than I am, but it is difficult to live life this way. It is difficult to be a Christian. It is difficult to follow the lordship and the leadership of Jesus 24-7. Why? Because I have lots of feelings, don't I? I have, I have lots of emotions that creep into situations. I have lots of insecurities and fears and worries and doubts and anxieties and thoughts that pop into my head in all and every situation of life. And in those moments, right, I find myself wrestling and struggling 
in the moment of being obedient. Last week, I told you the story about walking into Publix and praying to Jesus. God, I don't really feel like living on mission, walking into Publix. That was a true story. I wasn't making it up. I literally prayed that, God, I don't feel like living on mission again, walking into neighborhood Publix. That's a true story. I literally prayed that exact prayer. But the fact is, I know in my life that I'm called this nature of, of following Jesus in every moment being obedient to him. He says in Scripture, he says to be ready in season and out. Basically, in season, and you can interpret that when I feel like it and when I don't. And so in our lives, then, under the lordship of Jesus, our uh, and, and being under attack, our devotion to Jesus being under attack, calling us to trying to woo us away and de- to deviate from our course of being obedient to him. Right. Our only response in the moment can be obedience. It's a safe. Listen, it's this only safe place to be. It's the only safe place to be with him. Because when I'm obedient, I'm. Keeping in step, I'm under the lordship, and when I step out, listen, it's not good. Sin creeps in. We need, and here's the thing, and to live this life, hear this, this is important. This is the center of this this morning. To live this life, we need help from Jesus. To follow Jesus and to keep in step with Jesus we need the help and the investment of Jesus in our life. Obedience in the face of obedience in the face of hardship and struggles demands the movement of Jesus in our lives because without him we are sunk. So we talk about this lordship of Jesus and his responsibility and his compassion over us. Therefore, I would say this morning, I would propose in our lives that our lives must be marked. By a very specific posture before him. And the posture we must embrace is a posture of humility. A posture of humility. Do we all understand this theoretically what humility is? This idea, the the opposite of humility is pride, selfishness, self-reliance. Humility is saying, I recognize that that I am less than and you are greater than you are greater than I am. I come in this place of submission, this place of the lordship of Jesus, right? Recognizing I cannot do anything. I'm needy. God, apart from you, I have nothing. I need you. Humility, a posture of humility. The idea about Jesus is this. The very form and essence of who he is, is that he is greater than all. Right. That he is that we use the words like holy and glorious and majestic to define who Jesus is. They don't use words like that to define me, even on my birthday. Right. Like nobody uses. Listen, not to be rude, but I don't use those words to define you that way. I don't look at you, Bill. I know Bill's like, oh, right. I don't look at them, Bill. I mean, to say I don't look at you as being majestic and holy and glorious in your radiance, right? Like you don't radiate that from you. Like I love you and you're great and all, but the fullness of those pieces we don't radiate. Jesus does. And and in the context of the world in which we live, the only people that we actually could have used those words to describe people in, in the context of humanity is royalty. 
throughout history, it's always we 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 name we name we name the queen her majesty right we use this type of language to de- to describe royalty and we recognize jesus this way as lord and king and the idea of royalty in the context of of how we see them is this royalty never ever interacts with commoners because there's nothing that commoners can do to earn the the engagement of royalty is there like if you if you ever watch movies or something like you see there's this completely different lifestyle, completely otherness defining royalty's life. And the only way royalty actually comes down and stoops to a commoner's level is if they choose to do so. Because there's nothing that a commoner can ever do to compel or to force or to earn the movement of royalty into their life. It's simply a choice that royalty must make. Because they're completely other than. And so the nature of God is even more so that he is completely other than. He is completely separated from us. In his perfection, he is perfect. In his holiness, he's perfect. In his kindness, he's perfect. In his justice, he's perfect. We call he's sinless. And so the nature then of, of, of our lives before him is that there's nothing that we could ever do to earn his movement in our lives. That's the picture we see of Philippians chapter two. Jesus, Paul's kind of is speaking about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so what we see Jesus doing is this. He's saying, well, humanness and nothingness are equated together. Right. There's humanness and nothingness represent they're, they're they're equal here. But I choose to come down. I choose to engage. I choose to leave this otherness type place and come to you because why he is compassionate. He is loving. He is kind. He wants to move in our lives. And so, so Jesus, I want you to see this, in his complete otherness, with nothing that humanity ever did to earn the movement, decided to come down on his own accord to set us free. We see this beautiful movement of God towards us that humanity never earned. And that, my friends, is what we define as grace. That's what we define as grace. You can look on the screen. Grace is God's generous favor to both undeserving sinners and needy saints. It's described as unmerited favor. And that is true because you can't earn it. You can't earn or produce or do anything to make God move in your life. God's choice of movement is simply that he chooses to do so because of his love and his delight and his responsibility that he expresses over his children, you and me. And so God in this moment, in his lordship, his complete otherliness, whatever that, that's not a word, but it's made it up, right? His complete otherness. He lives in this place of saying, I don't have to because you can't force me to, but I choose to. And that's 
grace, God coming, right? God is too high, too great, too holy for anything we do to force his hand to move. He moves in our life because he chooses to. But the thing I want you to recognize is this. God's movement is predicated by our posture of humility. Coming back to this posture thing. God's movement towards us in our lives, right, is based and predicated on our posture of humility. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, Scripture says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. God literally cannot move in the lives of the prideful because they are so focused on self, making the Lord of their own, making themselves Lord, right? And God literally will not move, but God opposes the proud, but He gives grace. He gives a, an unmerited movement, right? Something they could not earn. He chooses to move in the lives of those who are living life in the posture of humility, recognizing that Jesus is Lord. He is completely otherly. He is here and we live in this place of humility saying, God, we need you and can't do it without you. Posture of humility and the, listen, the movement of God demands humility in our lives. It demands it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and humble. Andrew Murray says this, Humility is the only soil in which this grace is rooted. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and every failure. I'm going to read that again. This is powerful, right? Andrew Murray is a smart man. Humility is the only soil in which this grace is rooted. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and every failure. Jesus' lordship demands our posture of humility. Demands it. For our need for grace, listen. Demands, our need for grace defines our entire existence. Jesus' lordship demands our posture of humility, for we live needy of his grace, his movement in our lives every day. For without grace, our lives will not work. Our lives, without God's movement, there's no breakthrough. Without God's grace in our lives, there's no healing. Without God's grace, there's no restoration. Without God's grace, there's no breakthrough. Without God's grace, his movement, we cannot earn. We cannot live life. I, I was praying and asked God for a picture. God, what does this look like? What's a picture we can create? I had a picture of a bicycle. A bicycle. Now, a bicycle in and of itself has has the possibility for great speeds and to go great distances to carry people from point A to point B. Right. But a, a bicycle in its own strength can do absolutely nothing. It requires someone to get onto the bike and to begin to pedal. But listen, I'll be honest with you. My bike has never earned my favor to get on to get on it. Right. The bike, my bike has never, or never cried out and says, Steve, I will give you a back, I'll scratch your back when you get done, right? I will give you $35 and change if you get on. I'll, whatever, I can't, I'll give you, I'll give you Krispy Kreme donuts when you get done riding me if you'll just come and pedal me, right? There's nothing that the bike can do to earn me getting on and pedaling. And our lives are the exact same, right? We have unbelievable potential 
Only as God moves into our life and begins to pedal, begins to move and begin to pedal in our lives. And when he does, all things become possible. But until God moves, begins to pedal, right, nothing happens. We are in need of God moving into our lives and pedaling. Grace. God pedaling, even though we haven't earned it, the right to do so, right? This need of God's grace. And in the context, then, of our lives, if Jesus is Lord, because of that, he demands a posture of humility because he's Lord. And we can't have any movement in our lives apart from his movement, then when in life difficulties and hardships and struggles arise in our life that cause us to and try to challenge us to deviate from our course of following him in those moments, we are standing across her saying, God. Either I trust your lordship in humility or I lean into self. And God, what do I do in my life? I believe Paul answers that for us in a very, very difficult passage that I want you to look at this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn your Bibles there. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10. But in the story, Paul has come in chapter 11, chapter 12. He's having to, def- to defend himself. He's struggling, right? These people have said, hey, you're not really a true apostle. As great as you are, you're really not that great. The, all these guys over here are telling us stories and saying things about you. And so Paul feels compelled to defend himself. He feels compelled to defend himself, but he defends himself by really kind of naming his brokenness before them. Go read it in chapter 11 yourself. Then he comes in in chapter 12 and tells one of these profound stories that we don't know what to do with, where he comes in chapter 12. And I want you to hear this, right? Because in chapter 12, Paul says this. I know a man who went to the third heaven. I know a man who went to the third heaven. And he begins to describe, and all of a sudden you realize very clearly, he's describing himself. That in some way, somehow, whether it's a dream or a vision, he said, we don't know, he couldn't define it. He went to heaven and had an interaction with God where he had a divine revelation. Right? It's crazy. We don't definitely know what was said. We don't know what that time was like, but it was obviously pretty cool. Right? That's uh, pretty powerful. Before he dies, he actually goes to heaven and spends times with God, right? It's pretty powerful and unique. Never happened to me, right? It's a powerful moment. They pick it up in verse 7. He says this, Therefore, because of that, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, that is the moment where I am actually strong. 
Do you see the nature of how counterintuitive this seems? When I am weakest, that is when I am most powerful and have the greatest strength in my life. So let's begin by clearly saying this. No one, no theologian since Paul's, since that moment of Paul knows what that thorn in Paul's side is. No one knows, right? There's all sorts of people out there who say stuff that like possibilities ranging from Jewish persecution is what he was facing to temptation of sin, to epilepsy, to blindness, to speech impediments, to malaria, to some other sickness. No one has any idea what his struggle is. No one knows. And I think that is genius. I think that is genius because our ignorance of Paul's struggle allows us to put ourselves into his story with any and every struggle that we face. Because when he starts talking about struggles that has no definition, then all of a sudden, this is one of those easy stories that I put myself into. Well, I was struggling. You're like, oh, you're probably struggling with this because I struggle with it all the time. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You know when someone starts with a struggle that they face, and you immediately in your mind, you kind of relay it in your own mind to the struggle you face so you can identify with them? That's what we're talking about right here. It's genius that he didn't name it so that you wouldn't say, well, I'm not struggling with that, so that's not, that doesn't relate to me. No, he leaves it blank so that we can fill in our struggle with Paul's struggle, because what Paul is speaking about here applies to every struggle that we face in humanity. And so this story then becomes your story in every struggle that you face on an ongoing, regular basis that doesn't quite seem to ever go away. And the thing is this, each of you have one. Each of us. Now, there may be things that we're struggling with less than we used to, but it's the internal mental struggle, right? The thing that whenever we have a weak moment, we find ourselves kind of like looking towards or being directed to whatever it may be. The struggle that it seems to attack us, whether it's fear, or insecurity or lust or anxiousness, whatever it may be. And Paul's saying, hey. Here's my struggle. And then he gives this incredible, incredible phrase here in verse nine that I believe we all have to wrestle with. Because here's the thing. Some people fall away from the faith from this very tension named here in Second Corinthians 12. He says, Paul says, my grace is Jesus said this to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, birthed out of your struggle. So he's getting at my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So here's three things we must we must take from the story and wrestle with. Number one. We have to wrestle with the reason for his affliction. Verse 7 says, this has been given given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. Don't miss this. Take it for what it says. Don't try to theologize. He's just making a direct. He says, listen, I have seen a divine revelation that no one else that I know has ever seen. And I am liable to sin in the pride of self. So 
God to keep me from becoming conceited. He has either, listen, I don't care if you're Arminian or Reformed, whether you believe that he allowed it or he initiated it, doesn't really matter. God knows what's going on, and this is, this is, and God is okay with this. There's a thorn in my side. Some theologians who don't know anything, but say, it could be been for 14 years that he's struggling with this. It's been an ongoing thing for multiple, 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 multiple years, okay? And God is, is okay with, and maybe even to a degree, you gotta wrestle with this, delights in it. What do we do with this? He delights in the weakness of Paul. God delights in our weakness as humanity. Why? Because it makes us dependent in humility on God. Listen, I know some of you are like, I don't like this. This is, I don't like this, right? This ongoing thing, though, God's come to set me free, yes. But he didn't set Paul free. What do you do with that? Have you let yourself wrestle with that to come to a place of, of not understanding so you recognize your humility and your need for God in the moment? My goal is not to give you an answer today. It's to release you into the struggle with Jesus. Because I can't, make, I can't all of a sudden pretty this up. The gospel is dirty and crazy because Jesus did crazy things and called to do crazy things. Can you wrestle with that with Jesus or do you shut down because it's too much? God allowed this. Paul, but to keep Paul weak and needy and dependent upon him so he would not get conceited and to fall into sin. And the great thing is this. Paul didn't seem to wrestle with this. He didn't seem to wrestle with God allowing it. He Listen, in humility, he trusted the lordship of Jesus. And you have to let that sink in. He trusted the authority and the responsibility and the compassion of a loving God who allowed his struggle. You just insert your struggle into it so you can apply yourself to the story and recognize this. Charles Spurgeon says this. Anything is a blessing which makes us pray. Yes, we may be lax in prayer when all things flow with even current or with ease, but we multiply prayers when trials increase. In this way, Paul was kept from being proud. Wrestle with this. Don't like it. Do like it. Wrestle with God. I'm just, all I'm doing is just reading the Bible to you, right? The second thing is this. We have to wrestle with is the response of Paul. We have to wrestle with the response of Paul. His response is priceless. Therefore, God and his lordship decide this is the case. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak because of my struggles, right, in context of struggles, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In his lordship, Paul trusted God. In our struggles, right, in, our, in his lordship, do we trust him? Do we trust him in these moments when these types of things above happen? Just look at him again. When weaknesses occur in your life, do you trust God's lordship? 
in the midst of insults that people throw at you, whether you're in elementary school or my friend Eden back here, right, in middle school, right, when you throw insults at people, right, do you glory in that? Do you celebrate that? Do you celebrate when persecutions come? Oh, God, thank you. Let me suffer again for the name of Jesus. Do you glory in difficulties in your life? Think of every difficulty that happened this week. Where's Matt Rollins? See you here still? He stepped out, right? His wife, his wife, his, his wife's, his father-in-law is in stage three cancer, has been for three years. He's talking about the struggle they're facing. Do I celebrate cancer? Of course not. That'd be silly. But do we celebrate our need for God in the moment? We celebrate that. Paul's celebrating these pieces. But here's the piece. And then we, here we go. We're coming back to a health for a place that's made you feel better. You ready? This is throwing you a bone here. It's throwing myself a bone. It's always okay, though, and to expect for God to pull us out of the struggles and break them. Paul says, he says, I prayed three times that God would remove it. Why did he pray three times? Because he expected God to move. Why? Because Paul saw more miracles in the short span of his life after following Jesus than you and I have all seen put together. When he prayed about this struggle, he expected God to move. He expected him to bring freedom. He expected him to bring to bring release. He expected him to bring release and and freedom and, and, and wholeness in the moment. And I'm sure he was probably surprised when he didn't. Which in our lives means that when struggles come, we don't just go, oh, there's a struggle. We say, God, bring breakthrough, bring healing, bring restoration. We're going to believe and expect in faith. But if you don't, I will still worship you and bow down to your lordship and not fight you, but submit to you and celebrate the weakness this is producing in me that causes an undeniable need for you every day. And I will celebrate my weakness because then I'm in a posture of humility. Thank you. So that now your grace, undeserved movement can happen in my life. We have to wrestle with bad things happening to good people and in the moment not be crippled by it, but celebrate God saying, I don't understand and I would maybe do it different if I were you, but I trust your lordship, I trust your goodness, I trust your responsibility, and I trust your authority and your compassion. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses and insults For when I am weak, then I am strong. His weakness was a gift to keep him in a posture of humility. You have to wrestle with these. Is it hard? Some of of you have been so crippled by this that it's actually this whole tension. I mean, atheists, this is their primary argument against us, isn't it? A good God, why would he allow bad things? And so we have to, like Paul, come to this moment of revelation and say, but you were Lord. And I can't understand. I'm not even sure I like it, if I'm completely honest, but I trust you. Which comes to the third thing that we have to wrestle with is, number three, is the sufficiency of Jesus' grace. 
the sufficiency of Jesus' grace. Sufficient means to be enough or to be adequate with the implication of satisfaction. It's up here on the screen, right? To be enough or to be adequate with the implication of satisfaction. So it means this. In the moment of my struggle, lead up there for a little bit. In the moment of my struggle, moment of my hardship, the moment of this tension in my life that's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing, right? God says, my grace is enough to satisfy you even in the moments of your weakness. My grace can satisfy. It is enough. Even when everything around you is not changing, my grace is enough to satisfy you. It is adequate, right? It is adequate and it is enough for us. My movement in your life is sufficient for all times, right? This, is a, this, this verb is a present tense language, meaning it's an ongoing or continually present reality, meaning that God's grace is continually sufficient for all times for those who are struggling. And it's the posture of humility before him that predicates the movement of God in our lives into these moments. You see, Paul was speaking to Corinth here, which had Stoicism at its height in their culture. And Stoicism has this belief, this, that that man should be sufficient in himself for all things, able to, by the power of his own will, to resist the shock of circumstance. That self has the power to get over the struggles themselves and deal with it in and of themselves. And Paul is coming in the moment saying his sufficiency and his power to resist is found in God's outpouring of grace and not in himself. Listen, don't forget, Andrew Murray, the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and every failure. I heard Mike Bickle say one time on a tape, and it wrecked me years ago, and I never understood what it meant, but I think I'm beginning to now. He says, no one can fully minister in the power of God apart from a deep revelation of God's grace in their life. But there's nothing they can do to earn it. The posture of humility demands it. Because he is Lord, I trust him. And I can't even, I can't prove that. But I do know that God is Lord. He has authority in every situation. Will not allow something he doesn't think is good for me or for his kingdom. That he is responsible fully and completely and perfect in his responsibility. And that he is always compassionate. If I'm going to be all in, I have to wrestle with lordship. Because the ramifications of it in my life are heavy, they are weighty, and they are difficult. Because to be honest with you, I don't know many people in my life who say, well, I embrace this verse. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'm going to boast gladly about the ongoing struggles that face my life because it makes me pray more. It makes me dependent upon Jesus. And so I've got these things coming. I'm going to continue to pray that God will remove them. But if he doesn't, his grace is sufficient. And I celebrate that. And I'm excited that it causes me to pray more and be more dependent in humility on Jesus. 
let's be honest, this did not taste well this morning. You're now wrestling internally. Because I just said something like, well, maybe, is he saying God makes everyone sick? Did not say that, did I? Well, does God make, is God the one pushing every struggle I'm, I'm having? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when those things happen, what do you do? Do you immediately get angry? Do you immediately pray and become dependent upon Jesus? Or do you rely upon God's grace and say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you as Lord. And I will continue to pray for breakthrough in my life. I will continue to expect healing in my life. So this morning, everybody's giving that look. That, oh my gosh, I don't like you this morning. I was looking for baby. I'm going to be happy this morning, right? Because we had a difficult week. Make me feel better. I am. I'm turning you over to Jesus and his lordship. And I want you to look him in the eyes and recognize you are a commoner. And he is royalty. But because of his authority and his responsibility and his compassion, he is moving and allowing and doing anything that it takes to make you live in a posture of humility so a highway of grace is opened up for his movement in your life. I'm simply asking you now to take your tension and don't talk to your spouse about it. Don't talk to me about it until you spent enough time in prayer until God's brought you to a place of breakthrough about it. Can we pray? All right. Father, it was really mean to make you make me share this message this morning. But Father, I thank you that you love us enough to be honest. And God, I am, you know, you know. That God, I'm desperate for your grace. God, we are desperate for your grace. God, we need your movement. God, we need your understanding. We need your breakthrough. We need your clarity, God. We need revelation like Paul had of your lordship, your complete otherness, God, your complete holiness, your majesty and your glory. And I pray for each person because, God, there are people here that I put my finger on their struggles and they want to fight because it hurts so much. And, God, you know that I have compassion for that. And I know that you do, too. And I pray in your compassion this morning, Jesus, the great struggles that we wrestle with around this subject, that you would come with power this morning and bring breakthrough, to bring clarity, to bring understanding, and to turn us to be able to see your face. Father, we want to be enamored and focused on the beauty of Jesus. Help us this morning to see you. I pray this in your name. Amen.